Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight's features will fill the wrath of generations of Trekkers. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good films, the other two bad. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas. And I am Dr. Thomas Mariani. That doctorate is not legally binding. However, uh, yeah, at all. You just do shoddy work out of a van. <laughs> do you need a new kidney? Live long and <laughs> prosper. And long, I mean, 20 minutes, maybe? Who knows? Right. Um, but we have a special guest with us, a more experienced guest in the world of our subject for the evening, Star Trek, uh, which we're doing in honor of Star Trek Discoveries coming back on the CBS All Access app for all 50 of you, maybe? I'll give it 50. I'll give him 50. Our guest is uh, returning from our kid horror episode that we did a few months ago casey gerard casey how are you doing i'm doing well and the correct term is trekkie you snob you offensive racist prick. <laughs> full backstory is that we were going to do star trek as a topic and i was like going through my friends list like who is willing to talk um that is actually a trekker or a trekkie whichever because i that it's so interchangeable to me. But um, I stumbled upon to Casey, and I love the fact that I messaged you, Casey, but like, hey, would you consider yourself a Star Trek fan? And you literally said you were watching an episode of Deep Space Nine when I asked you that. I was not, actually. I was trying to come up with a snarky thing to respond, and then I got into a half-hour-long conversation with my sister. Because I told her about Trekkies and Trekkers, she assumed I was making that up. <laughs> well, I, I know that is a thing, so you, do, which do you actually prefer, genuinely? I prefer Trekker. That's my second choice. My first choice is who gives a shit. Good point as well. But I'm yeah, I kind su- of agree with that. Suffice to say, though, you are a bit more experienced because Adam and I admit at the end of our last episode we are more familiar with Star Trek through the films, but you are far more experienced with the television shows and everything else. Correct. I'm ex- experienced with both because I've seen all the series except Enterprise most of the way through, and I've seen all the movies many many times over my favorite era of star trek is the first six original series movies yeah you might be able to say i'm a real savage about it oh god (laughs) what what was your origin point for liking star trek and what what do you think makes it last especially as long as it has now over 50 years at this point uh the origin point was that my dad was a fan of it so i would watch random snippets of episodes while he was watching before I like understood what like a story was when I was that young but I could look and see oh this is Star Trek they're in space that was cool then in high school like my parents were both saying I would probably really like it and I found that TV Land played the original series at 6 a.m and I would get up at 6 a.m and watch an episode of the original series before I then got ready for school and why it lasts is, well, very good storytelling. It's also very archetypal storytelling. To sound totally snobby, 
Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are TV Shakespeare characters. They're a little bit basic, but they're very well-performed, they're very well-defined, and they are very easily molded into different dynamics that other shows and other series take. Yeah, I mean, I, I really agree with that, because I wasn't really a Star Trek fan growing up at all, because I was way more of a Star Wars kid. I remember I did see episodes of, like, Next Generation or Star Trek, literally, as I described last week, um, I would watch them whenever they would appear in front of syndication when I was waiting for The Simpsons to come on as a kid. It would just be like, it's like that show along with, like, Friends and Frasier, Next Generation especially, was that show where it's just like, all right, The Simpsons isn't on yet, I'll watch this. So blowing your mind when Kelsey Grammer showed up at the end of that episode. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, when I found he was Sideshow Bob, it was just like, oh, man, everything comes together. Uh, I didn't really get into Star Trek at all, actually, until the first J.J. Abrams movie. That was the first one that really got me at all interested in pursuing the other Star Trek movies, especially. And even though I'm not as familiar with the stuff in the show, still, those characters are so iconic. Especially, I agree, the Kirk, Spock, and McCoy do feel like they're, they're a resonating pop culture trio that you can really relate to any of, like, various different trios we've had in other films and television shows and all that. And you would agree with that, Adam, I suppose? I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, I, but I started watching these when I was a kid as well because my dad was also into it. But I didn't really follow the show. Thomas, I can't believe you haven't seen it until J.J. Abrams. Holy shit. Now I know why you want an expert on here. <laughs> no, no. Here's a hot take. I love that that movie came out because one week I was being made fun of by people whenever I would bring up Star Trek. Then it comes out a week afterwards. Hey, can I borrow your Star Trek DVDs? Right. It's like me with Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. I agree with Casey the original six well uh, the original they are four out of the original six they're all neat movies even if if only four of them are good and another thing that I really commend them for they're six very different movies yeah no they're all completely different in tone but I also like the next generation movies for what they are one out of the three Abrams movies I liked. It's kind of a jumbled order for me. And then, uh, you know, I had a couple of the toys, stuff like that. But no, I never really followed it. Like all the side characters other than the main crew, I have no idea who they are. Like there's yeah. people who know every member of Starfleet or whatever, and I have no idea. But again, you know, like apparently I know more than you, Thomas, for once. <laughs> Technically, one could say my first attachment to Star Trek in any way cinematically was probably see, being one of the few people who saw Galaxy Quest in the theater. Oh, well. God, what a good movie. That, that's I the thing still I... haven't seen it. What Netflix the fuck? Constantly... <laughs> Why the fuck is this guy me... on? He said he was on because he was watching Deep Space Nine and his first words were, I wasn't, I was lying. <laughs> he got a fucking flim flam man on the show. <laughs> no, Netflix always tells me, hey, you should really watch Galaxy Quest. And I say, I'll get to it eventually, Netflix. I mean, admittingly, I could see it if like they're like, hey, you should watch Galaxy Quest and it's just a big picture of Tim Allen's head. I could get the hesitation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, let's get into our specific films that we're talking about for the evening, which um, at the end of our last episode, we did our pick in uh, numbers between 1 through 10 of our two different picks, and ended up getting our good feature, which is Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which came out in 1982, and Star Trek Generations is our bad pick. Uh, But we'll get into the good one first, so first off, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. (laughs) 
somewhere in the darkest reaches of the universe, a battle is about to begin. A battle between good and evil, between a warrior and a madman. A battle that will take you from the end of time to the beginning of creation. A battle between the awesome power of the Starship Enterprise and the Wrath of Khan. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, rated PG. Now showing at a theater near you. Or is it to call it? Fake chest piece. <laughs> that that is a real chest. No, it isn't. Montalban has very much argued in the past that it is his real chest, but that's and, no. And <laughs> the director <laughs> has also stood by it. That's the oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so two guys out of like a hundred and the crew. Oh, it's not real. There's no fucking. <laughs> <one. laughs> I don't care. Well, enough of this deep state uh, chest talk talking. Um, <laughs> So Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan, we should point out that, obviously, this is the second of the features that were done with the original series cast, and notably, um, this is coming off of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which came out in 1979, and was, despite being a huge success, uh, very much uh, dogged upon, because, correct me if I'm wrong, Casey, with any of this history, but that came out about a decade or so after the original series ended, but there was a renewed interest because of in syndication. Star Trek, the series, the original series, was all over the place. And so there was this renewed interest, sort of a nostalgic throwback, interestingly enough, at that time for the motion picture to be come out and be made. And everyone was so hyped for it in the winter of 1979. And it's a long, very 2001 a Space Odyssey-esque kind of boring sci-fi movie that most people were like, what the fuck is this? This is boring. And that was a lot because of Gene Roddenberry and his influence. And so now when they were still able to make enough money to do a sequel, they are like, hey, Gene, get the fuck out of here. And they got Harv Bennett, who wasn't that familiar with Star Trek at all and had to, like, marathon through the original series, but was very interested in the episode Space Seed, which featured Ricardo Montalban as the character of Khan, Nuni, and Singh, which I actually I hadn't seen that episode before doing this recording. I, re- I watched it right before I watched Wrath of Khan. And um, you can tell why, because that character is, like, a very memorable villain in terms of, like, how he fought against Kirk and all that, even though... He's defeated with literally, like, Kirk pulls out a fucking cardboard tube from the control panel and beats him up. (laughs) It's a lot of great build-up, and then it's just, like, a very weird fistfight with a cardboard tube. I'll have you know, William Shatner's stunt double gave it his all, man. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I just love the fact that um, Khan says, Oh, I am 500 times your strength, and then cardboard tube, Oh! No! Oh, I'm down for the camera. (laughs) Was that history lesson accurate, Casey? More or less, you're missing another one of the big influences in that in 1977, a little movie came out that did moderately well called Star Wars. And as a result, there were a bunch of people who said, hey, we think we can make our own star series and space and sci-fi stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of the problem with the motion picture is it's trying to be both. It wants to be Star Wars. It also wants to be 2001 Space Odyssey. And those are not two flavors that blend easily. It's not chocolate and peanut butter by any stretch, no. No, no, it is not. It's chocolate and... Poop. Don't talk about Star Wars that way. It's better than poop. <laughs> well, no, I'm just comparing... Also, are you implying that poop is a flavor that you enjoy on its own? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> a good guano sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's more or less it. And... Like, what's interesting is the motion pictures directed by you and I, Tom, are very big fans of this director, Robert Wise, who did the Day the Earth Sale, he did The Haunting, and he definitely made a movie. 
It's interesting, but also it's the most interesting, boring movie I've ever seen. Yeah, that's the thing. I really like this the idea of especially sort of the verger thing that becomes sort of the main subject um, of the movie, especially like the halfway point. I find that idea <laughs> fascinating. I just wish we didn't have as many like fucking glory shots of the USS Enterprise. Like, how long is that sequence where Kirk's just like, oh, look, it's the Enterprise again. And they're looking at it and it's like, yep, there's that side of the Enterprise, and this side of it, and then here's the top, and then here's this. They just were really proud of that fucking model. And what I love about that is every single shot of the Enterprise in this movie until it goes to warp is just a reused shot from the motion picture. <laughs> that is true, but then you had to edit it down. They had a better editor. Yeah, they did. <laughs> like, you can't really notice it because they only use five of the Lord knows how many shots. And uh, this one was directed by Nicholas Mayer, who um, had some history with, he was an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter before this. He made a movie I would recommend that's very underappreciated called Time After Time, uh, which mm-hmm. features, yes, Malcolm McDowell as H.G. Wells going after David Warner as Jack the Ripper into then-modern 1979. It's it's really fun. That's a, it's a really good, enjoyable little time travel movie. And he kind of took the reins here and would continue to give some, at least, like, screenwriting stuff for the, the later movies. Directed the sixth one as well. Um, and was recently a consultant on at least the first season of Discovery. And uh, he put a lot of lifeblood back into the franchise. I honestly don't think... If they would have gone another route with these, with these films, I don't know that they would have had much success. If they would have gone the Gene Roddenberry route, maybe again for the second one, like, give him another crack at it. I don't know that we would have as many as we do now. It's just, this one just amps everything up from the first one, you know, to 11. And this is basically an extended, bigger budget episode of the show. And I mean, you got such a dynamic villain, too. So, I mean, that always helps. It's not just whatever the fuck was in the first one. You got you got an actual, <laughs> tangible villain in this one. Quite awesome, if I do say so. What I like about Khan is... As a villain, he's not really all that uh, successful. He successfully tricks Kirk once. Then every single move that he makes for the rest of the movie is him getting duped. But the thing is, he's such a persistent villain. It doesn't matter that he's literally about to die. He will still be trying to kill you. He he does not live to see Kirk win. He dies as uh, right before the ship explodes, before he gets a chance to see Kirk get away. He dies thinking he won. That is Khan. And then they do the one with Eggs Benedict Cucumber Patch and just ruin the whole damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> which, which gets into, oh my god, I hate yeah. the way Khan has been portrayed and advertised post this movie. Because I watched it with someone who had never seen this movie, and he only knew Khan as this legendary bad guy, and that's what surprised him so much with how ineffective he was most of the time. Khan almost wasn't a bad guy. Like, had he not tried to steal Kirk's ship, or had City Alpha 5 or City Alpha 6 not blown up, then he would have gone there, he would have ran a little tiny dictatorship on a planet in the middle of nowhere, and he would have been not even necessarily a friend, but he would have just been someone out there, someone who wished no ill will towards Kirk. But things did not work out that well, and he wanted revenge. Right, yeah, what I really like is the fact that Khan is less of, like, an actual imposing force as much as he is just, like, an albatross to remind Kirk of his past sins. Mm -hmm. You get totally why he would want to go against Kirk in this way, but it feels all from a sense of somewhere where you can relate to, because it's like, yeah, his his wife died, um, and he's just been marooned on this planet with all these other people, and he's a 
just a completely diminished cult leader, basically. But he does have affection for the people, his followers that are around him, and also he is still very... It's like you see, he's very persistent, and he has so much energy in him. I think that's what Borkala Montalban really brings to the part. It's just he has so much fascination and energy out of this rage that he has. And obviously there's so many great lines that he says, like Klingon proverb, all that. My favorite is the bit where he actually sees the Enterprise. He says, there she is. There she is. That's my favorite (laughs) line because he's just that infatuated with the, like finally seeing the ship again after so long. I I just, uh, that's what really he brings. And I think that's, that's what really works is despite how ineffective he is, he is still just very effective at pushing himself in Kirk's face and reminding Kirk of what he's done in the past, which works perfectly for Kirk's arc, which is going through, kind of going from this, like, promoted standpoint, wanting to go back into the field, wanting to be a starship captain again. Yeah, plus, we if without this movie, we would have never got... Khan! Hot take, that is not the best hamline in this movie. No. Like, no, nothing I... gets close to, This is Seti Alpha 5! After he says, This is Seti Alpha 5! He just gets down to barely above a whisper and starts talking about how SETI Alpha 6 exploded. And it's such a chilling moment to see his mood change. Yeah, well, that and the, from the bowels of hell, I stabbeth thee. Like, yes. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. <laughs> and then it's like, when he says, I uh, left you marooned, barely alive. Then he has to do his own echo, barely. that's the thing is that there's like a patheticness to Khan that at the same time you are kind of endeared by the fact that he doesn't see that patheticness at at all he's so gung-ho that he doesn't see that like nope none despite these not working I am doing the best thing because fuck this guy he's just so seething with revenge these after this it's such a great performance i do agree while being i would argue the best star trek movie it also might be the worst thing to happen to star trek movies in terms of how many of them try to have a con style character afterward but they take all the wrong lessons that you're talking about like there's even like eric banna in the first star trek reboot or so over the top (laughs) or you mentioned minda cumberbatch or even earlier than that you had like nemesis had that problem I would argue or as Malcolm well. McDowell. We'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think, honestly, out of all the original movies, you got Khan, you got, I can't remember his name, Christopher Lloyd in Search for Spock was awesome. Right. And then uh, Christopher Plummer in Part 6 right. as Admiral Chang was awesome. Other than that, they're all forgettable. They're all just cookie cutter. Well, a lot of them straight up don't have villains. Like, there's no villain in Star Trek Four. Well, I guess Five has Cybok. But that's that's a whole other that is a whole other movie that we could have talked about. Oh, row your boat! What does God need with a starship? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing, though. That bit is like that movie's worth it for that scene. That movie is watchable. But anyway, getting back off track. So yeah, this is the the best Star Trek movie, right? Can we do we agree on that? It's the best of any of the Star Trek movies. I think so. Very much so. I When I sat down to watch it, I was afraid that this would be the moment I watched it one time too many and I would no longer be able to see the wonder of it. I would just get caught up on, okay, this set doesn't look great or this costume doesn't work or that take was a bad take. They should have gone with another one. That happens when you see a movie enough times. It happened to me with Empire Strikes Back. It's going to be a couple of years before I can watch it again. I was afraid this would be that for me. And 10 minutes in, I realized it wasn't. 
two hours in and I realized I had a problem because I sat down to take notes to do this and I got too caught up in the movie that I forgot to take notes. You're right, though, about certain things, about sometimes the costumes don't hold up or the sets don't hold up. But I think that just adds the charm of it because it reminds you of the TV show. You know, it reminds you of the source material comes from, unlike a Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back, where it really doesn't have any pre-existing source material. I always have that fear with certain movies, too. But this is probably one, if not the only Star Trek movie that I can watch kind of repeatedly and not get bored with it. The rest of them kind of like, I'm good. The reason that it sticks out in so many people's minds, especially in like non-Star Trek fans, I think, is because it sticks so perfectly well on its own, really. Because yeah. you, you don't really need the first one, obviously, because it doesn't have much of anything to do with the motion picture. But even if you don't have that much knowledge of Star Trek, you can still latch on to just the story about Captain James T. Kirk is a former Starfleet captain who is promoted out of it, but then wants to go back in the field, is feeling a bit like he's starting to get into his older years and doesn't want to do that anymore and his relationship with his friends, with McCoy and Spock and the other crew members that come into it. You, you you feel that camaraderie even if you don't really know the backstory of these characters at the same time. Yeah, I agree. And I, I also think, as far as, like, this one and part three, I feel, are almost perfect companion pieces. Like, I think the transition between two and three is, is done pretty well. Although... Scotty probably should have just gone in there. <laughs> like, he, he, he well, is the engineering officer. Well, the idea was that he would have died before he could get the job done. As Spock is not human, he, he would live long. A, he was wearing a spacesuit. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That spacesuit doesn't have a helmet. And most of the radiation. I'm sure there's a fucking helmet somewhere on the spaceship. (laughs) Well, why do they grab the oxygen mask if there's if they would have helmets? All right, I'm I'm captaining this starship, and I'm telling everybody to calm the fuck down on the bridge. Um, to say that despite that, you know, the question you might have of like, oh, hey, some of the logical stuff. When you're really swept up in the moment of it, you don't really give a shit of like all the shits going down. And I think it works because you know, with Spock as a character, he's obviously so matter-of-fact about all this stuff that's going on, that when he sees this opportunity, he isn't going to hesitate like a Scotty would, or like a McCoy even does at a certain point. And I love that they do have that recurring light racism that's going on with McCoy, just constantly questioning, like, you fucking Vulcan piece of shit doing the blah blah blah, and how, um, you know, he says, no, I'm not going to let you fucking do this, dude, you, you can't go in there, you're going to die, and... He's like, well, as you keep saying, I'm Vulcan, so I can last a bit longer in there. And that moment really resonates, I think, because it's like we mentioned, even if you're not too familiar with the original series, you are aware of Spock as like a cultural icon of a character. And seeing him die in the selfless act and going in there, and especially how violent it is when like, that blue flame comes up and oh, he goes yeah. in there. And then the actual makeup where like he looks like he's like in Chernobyl or something dying there. It was voice and everything, too. Yeah. What gets me is when he's following the sound of Kirk's voice to go and meet him, and he runs into glass because he can't see uh, anymore. That's the part that always gets me. Yes, yeah. that that really hurts. This detail I didn't notice really until like, this watch was when he gets up, he still has like the common courtesy to like fix his shirt. Yeah, okay. mm-hmm. yep. I want to stand at attention, and yeah, it's. Oh God! <laughs> now, this always bummed me out when I was a kid. Hard. Mm-hmm. Like real hard, and the thing is, Thomas, I like I like what you're saying. Like earlier, even if you haven't, don't really have any knowledge of the show, period. And if you watched this movie for your first time, and it is the first time you've seen any of these characters, you would still a hundred percent feel the weight 
of this moment. Mm-hmm. It's done so well. And yeah, you know, I never noticed it either, Thomas, really until this time as well, when he stands up and he, you know, makes sure his shirt's straight and down. And you're like, oh, this fucking oh, <laughs> you pointy haired bastard. <laughs> well, and especially how, like, earlier on, you get a, a true sense where, like I said, even if you're not familiar, you get a sense of, like, the relationship between him and Kirk, where Spock has become the captain de facto at this point of the Starship Enterprise, but the entire time he's like, I'll do it because, you know, it's my duty and my logic, but you know I'm not cut out for this as well as you are. You were always the better captain for this position. You always would be the one to do a better job. And now it kind of goads Kirk into doing it a bit more. That's what works, is that you really feel the friendship between these two older men. And then when that happens, it just really... Especially the moment where, you know, like Scotty says, Captain, you gotta come down here. And he looks over at Spock's chair and he's gone. He just immediately knows, like, oh, fuck. I know what he did. <laughs> and he has to go down there. Uh, it, it, it does. It really resonates hard, despite not knowing, you know, maybe a lot about what's going on previously in the franchise. Let me ask you guys this with it. This only came up to me when I was watching this one. Do you think that when they were writing Savick, they had the idea that if these movies go forward and Leonard Nimoy did not want to be involved, this can be the new Spock? Yes. Yeah. I feel uh, that 100% okay. because they kept her going. And there's a lot of scenes where they're kind of passing the torch between her and Spock, where he lets her pilot out. She goes on the away mission instead of him. They do the little eyebrow raises to each other. And admittedly, I, I think Chris Yale is pretty good in the part as well. I think mm-hmm. that Savage yeah. really works, especially um, like how Kirk knows is like, oh, the, the new hairdo and all that. And then, um, and how she is, is very much like willing to speak a bit more candidly and actually still asking permission at the same time. I think there's shows a rebellious spirit that's there, but at the same time, she's still wanting to you know, respect the chain of command. I, I, do, I do really like that. Obviously, with the Kobayashi Maru thing, that's such a great concept, and the fact that Kirk mm-hmm. went around it um, and then later on paid the price for not accomplishing the no-win scenario. In the EU, the way he goes around it is he programs in Klingons to know and fear the name Captain Kirk. Because I know we're talking about this movie because we brought up part three. Okay, I'll just ask. What is your guys' like favorite quote from Star Trek, period? From the movies, from whatever. If you had to pick one, besides, like, the obvious live long and prosper to boldly go where no man has gone before. Uh, there's an old Vulcan proverb, only Nixon can go to China. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not that. It's probably one of uh, Cisco's rants in, as a captain's log in Deep Space Nine, or it's one of the closing lines of, like, Star Trek VI. For this one, it would be, of all the souls I've encountered in my travels, he was the most human. That's such a good line. That, wow, that, what a good, a, yeah, that's a good call. My, my, in fact, my senior quote in high school was, I have been and always shall be your friend. Fucking wow. nerd. Oh, that's why I, <laughs> <laughs> I like in um, part three with Christopher Lloyd where he's like, you know, send these people back to the ship. No, but why? Because you wish it. Evil and mad Christopher Lloyd is. Is, is my favorite, but no, I really like in this one, the whole Moby Dick part at the end where you just really get the idea that Khan just, is just wants to see Kirk fail no matter the cost. Like he's, he just had a pure hatred. And as we said earlier, I think the reason this one gets remembered so much is because of Khan. Honestly, I think that's a big, big part of it. Is because there's no other villain really 
I mean, how many more can you, by name, out of all the Star Trek movies, can you really name besides Khan? General Chang, Cybok. Chang. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> you. <Brad. laughs> you. All right. Okay. If you want to go into a series, there's Harry Mudd, oh, uh, the Borg Queen. <laughs> You know, I, I would like, sin- sincerely, I would probably say of like the um, original series, I would agree it's probably Khan, and the closest would probably be the Borg Queen. Like the Borg, just as a concept, I think is like the biggest lasting sort of enemies. Or Q, I guess. Would you Q. call Q a villain though? He started he's off more of a though. trickster. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah. As Charlie Day would say, "Wild card, bitches." <laughs> You know what, yeah. Uh, why did they never use Q in any of those Next Generation movies? I don't know. It, he would have been great to use as some cool. kind of like side villain in any of those movies. They threw movies. Robert Picardo in one or two of them. Yeah, he was in um, First Contact, yeah. And it was like, yeah. what the fuck? What? <laughs> but to get back to Khan, I will say, I think what also works is the fact that the other Star Trek villains, I think they had a problem with they had to have some kind of like actual hand-to-hand combat, which hand-to-hand combat in Star Trek in general is either... Awful. <laughs> I mean, it's at best, it's endearingly cheesy. Uh, and to be fair, you, you mentioned uh, Christopher Lloyd's Klingon character in 3. Um, at least yeah. I, I do like the, I have had enough of you! Like that sequence, <laughs> I think that's a that's a fun fight. But um, yeah, yeah. It, I think what works is that with Khan doesn't necessarily need that. Khan is a lot more plotting, and the most physical thing he does is admittingly terrifying with the SETI eels. That's so <laughs> terrifying. It's just like, oh, we're going to have these little eels crawl in painfully into your ear and make you susceptible to us basically puppeteering you especially with like with um walter caning and then also uh, paul winfield doesn't get enough credit i think is a very good supporting player in this movie especially yeah. when he has to like deal with the idea of like trying to kill kirk and then sacrificing himself really good underrated performance in the movie too yeah he's the unsung hero of this movie but yeah you would agree adam obviously i think that's probably why he works so well yeah yeah definitely like, that's the thing, too, about Khan. You almost, when you get into his backstory, you kind of almost do have sympathy for him as well. He's a horrible, murdering bastard, but you kind of can see where he's coming from. A little bit. The mark of any a great villain. Right, exactly. And, uh, again, I think that's why Khan has stood the test of time. And, honestly, I think that's one of the reasons that they fucking shoehorned him into, into darkness. Uh, like, when people know Khan, let's give him Khan again, which we did not need. But, I, I mean, just because he's so iconic. So, I mean, if, ah, uh, iconic. I mean, <laughs> oh, God. You can see yourself out of the bridge now. Yeah, I'm, 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 all right, everybody. <laughs> tip your waitress. Try the veal, come back for the 8 o'clock show, gets a little blue. Everybody knows Khan. If you say Khan, people know who you're talking about. They know the villain you're talking about, for the most part. I mean, you might find, you know... Choo Choo Charlie over here might not know who the hell it is, but personally, when you say Khan, my first thought is of Khan, the villain from Octopussy, the Roger Moore 007 adventure. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> There's just no fucking pleasing you. No. <laughs> from Hell's heart, Adam stabs at thee. <laughs> what I also like about this is the fact that they actually give all of the individual players in the sort of Star Trek crew something to do there's some small thing they get to do even if it's something as simple as Nichelle Nichols actually trying to contact Khan or I think Sulu has a great underrated moment when um, Kirk is telling him to like prepare the shields and he's just like preparing Captain the way that Takei delivers it I think is I really love fun. George Takei oh my yeah. god he's so good 
Mm-hmm. Oh my. It's probably the most they also give Chekhov to really do in any of these movies, with him getting yeah. Yeah, taken over. And it does create a bit of a continuity error for the hardcore Trekkers. It's like, uh, well, Chekhov wasn't on the bridge yet uh, during the first season, yet Khan recognizes him. How do you feel about that horrible error in continuity, Casey? Fuck, I don't care. Walter Koenig spun the wheel and won the I don't have to shoot with William Shatner this movie contest that they were apparently all in. He has said, that's my favorite thing about that movie. Half my scenes I didn't have to do with Shatner. And then in the next movie, Nichelle Nichols has almost no scenes with him. Then George Takei has almost no scenes with him. So I I sort of kind of believe that's a thing where they just were taking, like, drawing straws and who gets to not have a scene with Shatner. That's what they did really well with, I'd argue, too. Three and then a lot of four. They they gave the entire crew, even like you said, even if it was just a snippet, to where in the later movies, you know, five and six, it basically becomes a Kirk movie with Spock as a side character. And then in the next generation movies, it's Picard and Data. I want to see what Bones is up to. I want to see what Scotty's up to. You know, it's that what made the show work was the crew, or at least the idea. Um, because I don't know, guys, look. Hot take here. Shatner's not that good of an actor. I know. Look, it's my personal opinion. Not thousands upon hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people don't agree. Well, they do agree with me, actually, 100%. But the ensemble is what makes it work. And yes, I do think in this one, especially, um, they just swing for the fences. Like, even if it's a, you know him getting a fucking little slug in his ear, give it to him. Let him do it. Fine. You know, Scotty being all sweaty in an NASA suit. Fine, give it to him. <laughs> Let him do it. Show him. Because that's so much more frustrating when you get to, especially the next generation movies, is what the fuck you do with, like, At most all. of the... Well, I mean, Deanna Troy, it makes sense because she didn't have much to do on the show anyway. Until, weirdly, she's the one who has, like, a plot point in Nemesis with, like, her, oh, I can... Technologically, I'm linked to fucking Ron Perlman for some reason. Um, but oh my god, that's right. Yeah. But, but what do you give Worf to do? I'm drunk at the beginning of the movie, and that's it. What's the Var Burton do? Nothing, except he doesn't have the visor anymore. <laughs> doesn't Worf have a pimple in one of the movies? Uh, in, insurrection. In right. Yeah. Insurrection. Oh, that's right. Because they're all de aging or whatever. Which leads to okay. This is my new favorite line in Star Trek. <laughs> have you noticed your boobs are getting firmer? <laughs> Well, we're getting off track of uh, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, so I guess we might want to go into our final thoughts then here. Uh, Casey, our guest, go ahead and go to your final thoughts on Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. They brought in two people who weren't part of the franchise. They went through what they wanted to do. They wanted to have Kirk getting older. They wanted to have Genesis. They wanted to have Khan, and they wanted to kill Spock. And and they said, okay, let's try to blend this into a movie. A lot of this is sort of a happy accident, but it works. They were able to get those four different things to thematically match in order to make this a story about somebody getting older and the things they have to face. And it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I think the script is damn near perfect. I think the things that shouldn't work work really well, like like how they try to set up the next movie with the mind meld where Spock says remember, but that's not just a sequel bait because that still pays off in this movie with when McCoy says he's really not dead as long as we remember. It works on multiple layers, multiple levels. And that's this movie in a nutshell. Everything 
everything works. We, we never mentioned really the economy of the storytelling, but I really agree. There's a lot of great setup payoff throughout the whole movie, especially I noticed this time, how much of it's just like, oh, this is so perfectly like integrated, like first act, second act, third act payoff perfectly. But Adam, your final thoughts? Look, if you have any interest in watching a Star Trek movie, but maybe one day you're like, ah, I'll watch one to see what it's all about, then I think this is the one you got to watch. Well, it works as a standalone, and it would almost work as the only Star Trek movie. Just unfortunately, a lot of people would be like really bummed out that it ends with Spock dying, which I, I understand. But I, I agree literally with everything Casey said. I, I, I don't think any that have come since can eclipse it. Some a couple might come close, but I think this is the best one. Yeah, I mean, I generally agree. It's definitely the best one, and it's it's like you mentioned, it stands alone so well that it just works as a great sort of sci-fi um, story. That really, like we mentioned, there's not a lot of um, hand-to-hand combat of any sort. Kirk and Khan are never in the same space together; they're only on screens adjacent to each other. Um, mostly because I know they had to work around the Fantasy Island schedule for Ricardo Montalban with that and also literally the bridges are just redresses of each other <laughs> as well because that's how like cheap it was ultimately to like have two fucking big bridge sets but that still works because it feels more like sort of a submarine naval movie and that really works where it's just like you, you see just the these captains and their crew really are so game to like fight each other but at the same time what does that cost what does that mean especially for a man like Kirk that's aging out of it or for Khan, who this is his last desperate attempt to try and get his vengeance that he so desires. It, it works so well that, you know, these universal themes really resonate, even if you aren't familiar with what uh, Vulcan technically is and all this other shit. It's it's a very universal story, and it's, it's like I mentioned, it kind of is both the best Star Trek movie and also the curse that many a Star Trek movie has tried and failed to kind of grapple with. But let's go ahead then and get into our bad feature which is Star Trek Generations. Paramount Pictures invites you to leap into the future of adventure. Red alert! All hands to battle stations, cut the Picard to the bridge! Travel to the limits of time and space as the next generation of heroes <laughs> takes you beyond the final frontier. Make it quick! Let's try and cheat death together. Warp one, engage! Yes! Star Trek Generations. Special preview Thursday, November 17th. Regular engagement starts Friday, November 18th. So, Star Trek Generations, uh, which is obviously, by its title, um, the first film to feature any of the Next Generation casts, uh, came out shortly after the Next Generation series ended, and uh, was the first of four of the movies in which, you know, Picard and his crew would appear. But also has a few appearances from Kirk, and a few of the other original series cast members, to bridge the gap... Uh, very literally bridge in certain places. Oh, God. <laughs> and so, Casey, I'm especially curious to hear your thoughts on how it kind of does that connective tissue, given how big a fan you are of both series. It doesn't do as well as Star Trek Six did. That's the big thing. It's not even the best of the Passing of the Torch movies. It's has things that are neat, but overall just kind of a mess. It struggles to give anything except two characters something to do. There's an entire subplot with fighting the Klingons that's only there because they want to dump these sets. It really struggles to be cinematic in a way that the other ones didn't. 
I mean, yeah, that's just that's that's kind of what the problem is with it. Especially this is the first time I'd seen it in a while. I realized um, I, I talked to the guys earlier about this off mic that I rewatched I rewatched the Next Generation movies I knew I had watched, which were this one, and I realized Insurrection upon rewatching. Like, oh, I remember this boring piece of shit movie. And then, like, to First Contact and um, Nemesis, those were the first time I'd seen either of those. And I think what what's interesting, especially with this one is it, it definitely feels like it's a TV crew, which includes, like, David Carson, the director, had directed a couple episodes of the series, and also was written by, like, some of the people who had written for the show. You can tell they're kind of struggling, and I will give at least this much credit. I think they do a pretty impressive job of adding a cinematic lighting to the TV sets, because it doesn't look as, like, fluorescently lit as it did in, like, the Next Generation from what I remembered. It definitely looks like they at least tried some cinematic stuff with lighting, particularly the bit where Picard's looking through his photo album, and sees his nephew who died in the fire. I thought that's actually a really well lit scene. Uh, despite it's like in, it's cascaded and dark. There's a lot more experimental stuff that's going on there. It shows that like they wanted to, you know, kind of hide the <laughs> the issues they had with these sets, which they were going to end up destroying by the end of the movie anyway. And the future movies do a better job of kind of like bringing the next generation into the cinematic space. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, there's there's a lot of especially when you have Malcolm McDowell and Picard talking to each other on that, what, what's that area in the deserts in California that they shot a bunch of Star Trek stuff at that's clearly the same fucking rocks. I forgot what it's called, but it's that oh, same. Oh, I know what you're the talking about. Bogus Journey Rocks. Let's call them the Bogus <laughs> Journey that, that's, Rocks. Yeah. How much time is spent on just, like, Picard and Malcolm McDowell's character awkwardly walking around? Quite a <laughs> and, bit. The movie fucking stops for it. <laughs> Especially, because yeah, I think that's a rare case where, like, the sound mixing is so good where you can hear every individual step that you just feel time go through the hourglass. Where it's just like, Malcolm McDowell has to walk from this place over to this place, and it's just like, why are we spending this much time here? And for for Malcolm McDowell's character, it's supposed to be this brilliant man. Never once thinks that he's just trying to kill time. He's trying to stall me. Never once. <laughs> he like, wants to have a conversation. I've been <laughs> lonely being diabolical. <laughs> Green is my favorite color, and I truly enjoy lavender in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will give credit to, I think Malcolm McDowell's having a lot of fun with a very thin part. Uh, I think you can believe the obsession he has with the sort of ripple, um, the, what's it called? The, the time ripple ribbon thing? The Nexus. Yeah. The, the Nexus. Nexus. Yeah, you can tell he has, the, the obsession he has with it, I can believe off of him, but it's weird that they especially, in the process of doing that, they make Patrick Stewart so passive in this movie. He feels like such a non-entity of a main protagonist of a character. Because of how much he's just like, Hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You should stop doing that thing with the rocket. And then later on, Hey, William Shatner, you're a Starfleet commander. You should get your shit together. And Wait, you got Kirk... any horses we can ride? <laughs> and Kirk doesn't even, like, he comes to all the realizations about, like, you know what, this is all fake, on his own... And Picard's like, yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they, they go from such an extreme medium in these movies. Like in this one, you say he's so like subdued and like, you know, probably shouldn't be doing this to like the next movie. No, the line must be drawn here. <laughs> like, what the fuck happened to this guy? What More dynamic we- screenwriting happened in that <laughs> between the movies. <laughs> And this is the one time I've ever not bought a Patrick Stewart performance. When he's crying about his dead nephew, I was like, this is really corny. Like, he's not selling these lines for me. It's weird. Oh, and another thing, too. So the Nexus, like, gives you what you want, right? Like, you can live your fantasies or whatever. 
Right. Why is his fantasy to live in like 1830s England? That is totally a John Luke Picard thing. He would it's totally. So weird. He. Papa. <laughs> like, yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> At the beginning of this movie, uh, he has to promote one of his crew members, and his way of promoting crew member is, "How about let's pretend to hang you in the 1800s?" Well, that, <laughs> that is true. true. That's true. That okay. is totally. Uh, that's on in character for John Luke Picard to be. Low-key nuts about Dickensian era stuff. I was almost waiting for one of his kids to say, Papa, I can't wait to see your production of A Christmas Carol this evening yeah. after we open our presents. Come find me crutches, because me legs are all wonky. Sure does suck for Picard's kids to have to watch him do a one-man play of A Christmas Carol every year. <laughs> By the time they're 17, like, Papa, we've seen this so many times. No, the line must be drawn here. You must watch this. <laughs> Especially if it's this boring-ass Picard. <laughs> That's true. It's not even the level of the Hallmark production of Christmas Carol that Patrick Stewart did. How uh, to get a goose, or don't. I don't know. <laughs> figure it out. Uh, Adam, I guess we didn't get a chance for you to go ahead and go a bit deeper into your overall thoughts on uh, Star Trek Generations. I like Malcolm McDowell in it, actually. I think this might be the last semi-decent McDowell performance in a long time. It's just so boring, dude. This movie is so boring. You don't... I, I mean, even the fact that in the beginning you get Kirk, cool, and then his two officers with him are Scotty and Chekhov. Like, come on, man. <laughs> Nobody else wants to be in this, so let's get the two most boring crew members we can. It, it's just... Ah, it's so dry and dull, and everybody's giving a weird, understated performance. Except Kirk, for some reason, remembers this when he first met this girl on a fucking horse ranch in Iowa. What year are we in? Why is he? Why is he cooking like a rabbit stew in a cast iron pot? <laughs> on a wood stove. Now I'm convinced this isn't literally William Shatner's house that they went to shoot I, it in. Well, I know it's his fucking horses. It had to be his horses. I've seen interviews where William Shatner is being done. It's like, oh, it's Captain Kirk himself, William Shatner here. And he's just like, do you love horses? Have you ever ruined oh, a horse? He's the, he's the, a lot. <laughs> yeah, documentary that was called The Captains, where they went and interviewed all the different people who played the captains on the Star right. Trek. He rode horses the whole time. <laughs> like, yep. You have clearly aged, toupeed, overweight Kirk having a fist fight, <laughs> if you want to call it that, with Malcolm McDowell. He was less attacked by Malcolm McDowell and more by the editor. Because <laughs> those well, fucking fight scenes are so choppily edited. Spoilers, but when he dies on the bridge and the bridge like falls... The way he's holding on to it, it just looks like a fun ride. Like, it looks like he's having a good time. That's how you kill Kirk. You have him crushed by rocks after falling off a shoddy, like, wild, wild west bridge. You have to give him some credit. The average age of people in that fight scene is, like, 75. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, I agree. The Undiscovered Country, I I 100% agree, should have been it. It. Done. Perfect send-off. So then they do this one, and they, they oh, it's almost like, well, you already know what it is. Nobody's going to want to see this without, you know, Kirk and all them, because that's Star Trek to the average audience. 
you know, people were paying to see this, not these new kids. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily that as much as, like, the, the selling point is, all right, it's the old school meets Kurt the new school. Picard. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, oh my god, the yes. two of them are meeting They're for the... They're gonna share ten minutes of screen time, okay? <laughs> Bill's gonna make a soup. <laughs> They're gonna chop wood for a little bit. Ride a couple horses, throw a couple axe handle punches, hey, you're gonna get crushed by a bridge! Don't forget the most important thing, which is there's a point where he's, like, fucking whisking something in a pan. It's like, oh, hey, can you hold on to this? And Picard's like, ah, yeah, it's, it's like, hot. That's like the passing of the torch in the movie, is that big? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I burned my eggs! It's hot! No! <laughs> And then, no. and not to mention, like, we all, we're also, we're skipping over, like, another thing where this feels so much like this is written by TV writers who don't know how to write a movie, is the whole subplot with Data getting the emotion chip. I, in defense, I will like, I like two specific points of that. I do like when he initially gets it at the bar, and he's trying to understand what hate is, and then he realizes, like, I hate this. I hate this. That's the most I wanted to be that, like, that comedic. That works fine. <laughs> and then, actually, I really like the scene where him and Picard are talking to each other, and Data can't get over his own emotions. And Picard has to, like, straight him out on it. Those two scenes, I think, are great. Everything else is garbage with Data and the stupid fucking emotional shit. Oh, and they did it... Didn't they do it in the next one, too? In First Contact, he had the Data... The uh, emotion chip, still, didn't he? He has it for the rest of the movies, but in First Contact, he just has the idea. It was like, hey, maybe I should turn it off for the fight. Boom. Done. Like, you don't have to open him up for it. He just knows how to turn it off. Well, well it's yeah, the activate... turns it back on. Right, yeah, the Borg Queen turns it back on and uses it against him. It's a much better use of the fucking chip. <laughs> right, that's, that's what movie. I was getting at. Way better idea. And then yeah. she puts the real skin on him and cuts him and it hurts him. and Whatever, we're getting way yeah. off track. Because, uh, I don't know, because maybe Generations is fucking boring. <laughs> Nothing happens. You know, that baffles me with that entire subplot. It doesn't resolve. It just sort of ends. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I've had it for enough times. So, yeah, now I know how to control him. It's like, no, fucking show me that, guys. I mean, know how you could have done that? You could have done that with the one scene that fight me on this. I actually teared up a little when he found Spot, and he was just really happy that Spot that had made it out through the crowd. Oh, that was a good scene. That's in this one, yeah. See, yeah, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's Brent... how much these movies bleed together for me. <laughs> and I just watched this one. I'm thinking, wait, wait, oh, no, no, not the. No, Riker didn't crash the ship in this one. Yes, he fucking did, and yeah, I don't even remember. <laughs> and and that's like the big action sequence of the movie is, oh my god, the ship is getting fucking crashed. It feels so much like these that guys... Sh- a ship crashes or gets blown up in every fucking movie. Well, I mean, that's true. Yeah. Who has the funding <laughs> to keep making these goddamn starships? Uh, well, if I'm correct, the uh, the Academy of the Future is very different. In they, really they, these fucking guys... Kirk and Picard, they'd be grounded so fast after the second starship got blown up. Because <laughs> like, it works so well in, like, a Star Trek 3, where that's a great moment in Star Trek 3, where, like, the ship explodes and they're just, like, wistfully looking, like, look, there it is. She's gone. Like, it, it's, it's home. A, yeah, home. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's a great little bit of moment. And then they successfully think, like, we gotta keep fucking destroying the ship. That's our big action moment. It's like, not really. Blow them shits up every movie. <laughs> They nearly blow it up again in first contact. It's like, well, so much. We barely knew her. We'll get a new one, I guess. <laughs> you guys have had this thing for a month. They literally all become a bunch of space hobos just hopping the rails, basically, going from ship to ship. Can't settle in, can't do anything, so they get in a bunch of shenanigans and hijinks. They got emotions all over the place. They're going in reverse puberty. What the hell is going on in these movies? 
Yes. They just, they feel, like we said, a lot more like TV writers trying to do 100%. a movie. Especially They're like trying the, to, right, stretch out 40 minutes of a script into two hours. Well, especially with the B-plot of, like, Data, like, that would work much more over the course, like, a B-plot in an hour-long episode of a show. <laughs> At the same time, they still forget, like Casey mentioned, to actually resolve that subplot. I got control over it. Or then also, the way that they just keep cutting, especially from story to story with that, like, how long do we spend in that grueling, endless scene where him and LeVar Burton are, like, looking around that one derelict ship and then they get attacked by Malcolm McDowell? And they just have Brent Spiner laughing incessantly. It's... Mm endless how much he fucking laughs and it just got to a point where I'm like can... Brent Spiner I like you so much stop stop, stop him <laughs> tell him to stop and they do it in all of these movies with him mm-hmm. like they just ha- they're literally like hey Brent go crazy we'll film it <laughs> which you know look obviously the dude loves being data there's no question that I mean that's his bread and butter that's what made him that's what he still is known for Mm-hmm. And he knows and respects the character, but Data is a side character, though. He's not that fleshed out. You get the idea. He was created by a guy. He's always been an android. He's supposed to be one of a kind, yet all the time he's finding other heads and hands and shit of androids just like him. Well, that's besides the point. So then he gets the emotion chip. Okay, you got it. He's an android running emotions. He's also super strong in technology and you know, you got it. Enough. I don't need to spend 45 minutes in each movie with fucking data. And in the process, really just pushing other people to the side. Like, this is the most I think Michael Dorn gets to do in any of these movies. With, like, the opening mm-hmm. bit. Which is fun. Like, I, I do like the holodeck scene at the beginning. I think that's a fun way of, like, having all the characters kind of be together, have a bit of camaraderie, and, like, the ship plank going down. That scene almost felt like it was about to go into, like, the end of, like, an 80s crass comedy where it's just like everyone into the water and then just <laughs> and they start playing like exactly it's like the end of Caddyshack I was oh, I was hoping for that honestly <laughs> but yeah after this it's just like they ignore him and then LeVar Burton too poor LeVar Burton like at least he gets like the contacts in the later movies as opposed to wearing the fucking big visor I really like Jonathan Frakes I think yeah. Riker's good C, uh, you know CO I really do and they just do not really do nothing with him except Make him super horny for Deanna Troy in like the last three of these movies, and they get also, married to her by the end. Yeah. Talk about banging. Yep, that's all they want to do. Shaving. Oh, no more rug burn. Oh, good god! <laughs> and really, really creepily banging in that one scene in Genesis. <laughs> that's so just irksome. Even before Tom Hardy gets into it, that's really weird. Um, but Casey, I think we're seam rolling over you a bit. Is there anything else you want to mention about specifically maybe generations? It's a very interesting showcase in how to adapt a TV show to a movie because I feel like they were able to notice here's what our problems are going to be. Here's what our production design and what our costumes look like compared to what they need to look like. Here's what our storytelling structure is like compared to what it needs to be like. They identify solutions to those problems and then only get like 40% of the way there, which is not enough to solve them, but it is enough that draws attention to it. Like, did bug you guys that they were using half and half different uniforms in this, the old TNG uniforms and then Deep Space Nine uniforms? Yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. yeah, that's because they thought, oh, the TNG uniforms won't look good on the big screen, but the Deep Space Nine ones will. But we don't have enough of those made, so we're going to give half of you them, and then you half of you are going to keep the old one. So it's just there enough for me to notice, but not there enough to fix the problem. Same with, I know you were saying you really like the lighting in this, Tom. I really don't. 
I think it's weird to have beige set with yellow colored lighting. And it just looked pretty ugly. I was looking forward to any time they got off of the uh, the ship. There was a bit of me that was wondering, like, what would this movie be like at the risk of being a hero that should have done it? I was wondering what it would have been like if around the end of the first act, beginning of the second act, the ship gets torn apart and they all end up in the Nexus. Because then that would give more people something to do. You can see, here's what this person does for joy. Here's how they overcome it. Here's how they find their friends. Here's how they get out. Here's how they all take on Malcolm McDowell. Oh, that sounds like an infinitely better movie, Casey. Yes, yeah. thank you for yeah, rewriting I that. Agree. Go back to 1990-fucking-four, please. I instantly pictured them all, like, floating through, like, a big tie-dye thing, and then Inagata DeVita playing. <laughs> and they all go to their separate things. Like, you know that that sounds boring. No, that it's, no it does not. Better. No. Yeah, maybe that's Jonathan Frakes' thing. He wants to be the lead singer of Iron Butterfly. Who the hell knows? If Picard could go back to fucking the plague times. <laughs> I, would, I would totally love to see what Data's version of Joy is. That could have been a thing that makes him understand his emotions better, and you get to see that that arc happen over the course of a movie instead of just not. But Casey, that's silly. We don't need yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> we need more scenes of, like I said, op- Picard awkwardly sitting on a rock, just like, yep, yeah. waiting. Just kicking around uh, dirt. Yeah, doing? <laughs> I know why he's doing it, but from Sauron's eyes, Picard's just sitting there skipping stones. What <laughs> <laughs> part? Like I know he's throwing him to see if there's the uh, the force field in the one spot, but Sauron sees him chucking a couple of them, and he's just like, "Man, this guy's having a gay old time." Just sitting here <laughs> talking to me. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's that as much as he looks just more like. Do you need like a crossword puzzle? <laughs> You seem Hops. pretty bored down there. <laughs> Hopscotch? Do you want to play jacks? I don't know. I have a deck of cards. We could do... I know you like those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I-, I got an idea. I spy with my little eye something dry. It's the desert! <laughs> it's the you only really thing in your line of sight. You truly are a formidable opponent, Captain. <laughs> oh, and then when he does get through the force field and he gets, like, onto the bridge and it takes McDowell a couple minutes to realize he's standing right there, it's like, oh, how about that? Oh, my favorite bit of the whole movie, though, is the bit where after the... For some reason, they have this whole contrivance of, like, oh, we're going to make the rocket invisible. We're going to make it visible. And Picard's fucking around with it. He's like, oh, you stop fucking around with it, Picard. And then Malcolm McDowell comes up and Picard goes away from it. And then he looks down and he sees that he sabotaged it. And there's a close-up of Malcolm McDowell where he looks like he's just one fucking post board away from pulling up a Wile E. Coyote sign. And then he explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Including, they have a, like, awkward close-up right on him. And I was expecting, like, a Daffy Duck, like, and then he explodes. But but yeah, I think we've exhausted a lot on Generations. So let's do final thoughts real quick. Casey. This movie's boring. There's things about it that are, are interesting. I actually do like some of the fan servicey stuff. But they're just, as a cohesive whole, it is not there. And... I found myself not only not taking notes, I was just fidgeting uncomfortably, just waiting for the movie to keep going. Because apparently in the 1990s, whenever you go down to a desert planet, your movie just fucking stops and just will not pick back up again for like 45 minutes. I want another example of that. What's another one? Phantom Menace. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
It's sad. I don't like it. Get everywhere. Uh, that's uh, that's getting into Attack of the Clones, but go, keep going. Keep <laughs> I, I will give this movie one bit of credit. I think the effects on the sp- of the spaceships are actually really good. They're very Independence Day-esque, which even though I hate that movie, I really like its models and computer compositing combination. I think that they work really well, and I think it looked really... Well, here, I really liked the shot of the exterior of the saucer just uh, crashing against the ground. That's, like, one of the only things I like about that. Adam? I think I've already said way too much about this movie. It's long. It's boring. There's shit in it that is just fucking, come on. Just, you know what? I mean, come on. That's what I got to say about this movie. Come on. Enough. Just stop. The line must be drawn here. The line must be drawn here. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I do somewhat agree. I think I might be the most positive on the movie because I, I what I meant with more of the lighting is I think it's a more curious thing of like sort of experimenting they're trying to do with these sets. They're trying to work around it. And I think it results in some interestingly lighting. I don't know if it's the best lighting, but I think it, it's you can tell like you were mentioning, Casey. These are like TV directors and writers trying to work around how to like adapt these characters cinematically. And then especially when I was rewatching the other ones, the only one that ever got it quite right was First Contact, because they also had the benefit of, like, a much better story, a lot of better, like, fun actors that are going around. That whole time travel plot really works, and the Borger, a much better villain. Um, also, James Cromwell, Drunkenly Dancing, needs to be in every movie. Alice Krieg in that movie just fucking kills it. No, she sells me on a concept I don't like. It's brilliant. Yes, that's true. Uh, I think that that all really works well. Um, as opposed to Generations, which doesn't... It's not the worst one. Insurrection definitely, I think, is worse. I'd even argue Nemesis is worse, despite a Tom Hardy trying his best. Um, that, that movie also, I think. Because that one has more of the problem of trying to be a Wrath of Khan. This one kind of has that, but also it's just like, hey, let's try and fit in a bunch of other weird ideas that I at least would say are it's ambitious to a certain extent. If not, like I said, it's just the moment you have Picard being so passive and you just especially have Kirk kind of just taking on, it feels definitely like some influence of the star kind of coming in and destroying things a bit with Kirk. Like you can tell Shatner had a lot of notes about like what he wanted to do and what he wanted to be there. And then just that ultimate finale for his character is just it's such a weak sauce way of sending him off way more compared to, I agree, Undiscovered Country is very underrated. But, yeah, that is our discussion on the two films, but we did have some feedback. We asked all of you out there on the Double Edge Double Bill Facebook page and Twitter page, which is at DEDBpod, about what your favorite, least favorite Star Trek movies were. Um, and first off, Dan Chambos says, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, is underrated. Um, you I know, don't we mentioned... know that it's underrated. I think people like it. I just don't think it's... I think it's exactly talked about as much as it should be. It's a perfect movie. We should talk about more. <laughs> y'all y'all should have seen the face of 15 year old me when i was at on vacation in california and we went to an aquarium and i realized oh my god this was the aquarium where they shot star trek 4 well we all don't have that specific memory in our heads we <laughs> loved the movie i loved the movie before that and you should have that memory do that. You're right. Okay, you know what? I'm going to get on that. <laughs> you know, they, they've said as much that 2, 3, and 4 are sort of the unofficial trilogy that really works together, and I would agree with that. I think it's, I, a, it's a solid streamlined kind of thing there, and plus um, it has Scotty talking to a mouse saying, computer. That's great. Keyboard. How <laughs> quaint. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, Brian Kane says, uh, motion picture and beyond are probably my favorites. The latter being a massive breath of fresh air. I'd say all the next generation movies are big, dumb, and unrepresentative of the series with perhaps first contact being the exception. Uh, you know what? I do think beyond is underrated. I think beyond deserves a lot more credit for like, I think it did the best balance of like the big over the topness of the Kelvin timeline while at the same time sticking to the roots of the original series and more importantly, giving all the characters something to do. At the same time, second Idris Elba, I thought that was such a boring villain. I mean, it, it suffers th- the con problem again. Definitely. Yeah, it's I'm not so, and for to get someone like that, you know, of his caliber too, you're like, ah, oh, damn it. But other than that, I thought it was good. I just, I, I don't kind of get behind the villain. But other than that, the movie was, I liked it. This is coming out not too long after Paramount announced they're going to stick way more with the TV side of Star Trek and put the movies on hold. And they're not going to do that weird sort of like um, Chris Hemsworth comes back as Kirk's father thing they were kind of rumored to do. And also no, that weird, thank God. And then that weird Quentin Tarantino script, apparently, <laughs> for Star uh, Trek that was going around. Oh, I thought that was still going. I don't know, because that's the thing. They were they seemed kind of nebulous about the future of it cinematically and are going sticking more to like the TV stuff that they're doing. with. That's like, probably for the best. With Discovery and then also the, what is it, the Picard show that might take yeah. place in that same Kelvin timeline. It's weird. I'm not sure, but um, Casey, are you for or against that? I want them to spread Star Trek out again. Because for a while in the 1990s, there was Star Trek all over the place. There were the movies going on, then there was Voyager and Deep Space Nine, there were comics, there were books, there were conventions. And now just we had the movies for a little bit. And then once Kelvin happened, we're now going through a lot of the same time periods again. The last bit of like, chronology in the star trek universe we saw was nemesis we have not gone further into the future than that and i want to see more of that let's go into the 25th century let's do shit there let's go to andromeda let's do let's go forward into the future again instead of just re going back through the original series era and now apparently i'm really hoping the patrick stewart show is the original timeline 25 years later I agree with you. And you know what, Casey? I think they should have the balls to just do an, a new movie, a continuation with an entire new cast, entire new crew, not pre-existing characters, not anything just set it in the Star Trek universe. I think it could work. I would like to see them do that, perhaps even on a non-Starfleet ship, or like maybe you get a Starfleet captain who retires, and then they get their own freighter. And right, they that just could be... To... But then you're kind of maybe getting into a little bit of Star Wars territory where they could really take it that route. I think the, the reason there's such the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars is obviously Star Trek's more of the procedural military sort of idea, the more exploration. And I, I'd like to see it stay at that with those roots. I think that's what makes it a smarter maybe idea than Star Wars. I'm not saying better, but smarter. And I, and I wish they would kind of do what you're talking about with, like, a completely new crew, but you can sort of take the, I think the best thing that the, you know, Star Trek 2009 movie did really was have that sort of, the better version of passing the torch of having old Spock come in. In that case, I think Picard would be a perfect character to do that with. And Patrick Stewart's, like, the right age to where you could do that. You already fucking kind of did it with uh, X-Men, too. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's yeah. true. In X-Men Origins Wolverine, I remember that. Yes, everyone's favorite. Of all those movies. Yep. Yes. No disputing that. Um, and then uh, Andrew Lorenz says, Best for me would have to be First Contact. Is there any debate about Five being the worst? Yes. Yes. 
I, I Insurrection's think... the worst. No, <laughs> let me rephrase that. There's no debate because it's not the worst. Right. There you go. Five five is the worst out of the original six. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll say that. I'll, yeah. I'll probably watch it before I watch the motion picture, though. Yeah, I probably would, too. And also, I think it does work in segments. Like, I really like the first 30 minutes where you're just seeing them all hanging out and camping together. There's no plot going on. It's really dumb, but it's fun. <laughs> you almost want, like, a Robert Altman Star Trek movie. <laughs> yeah. It's just all them chilling out. <laughs> yes. Robert, Alt- Robert Altman's Nashville, but Nashville of, like, the 23rd century. Yeah. <laughs> it's just called Ro- Star Trek Romulan. <laughs> They're just all hanging out around. <laughs> and they're all singing socks. Sure. I, uh, why not? Honestly, it's, it's called Romulus, you fake nerd girl. Oh, that's true. It's almost as if I specifically mentioned I wasn't the huge Star Trek person at the beginning of the right. show. Um, and then Nate Thomas finishes out her feedback by saying, uh, My favorites, Wrath of Khan, Voyage Home, First Contact, Least 5-1 Insurrection, Underrated, Undiscovered Country, and Nemesis. I agree with I, one of those. I I actually agree with the entire list. Now, what what do you like about Nemesis besides Tom Hardy, Adam? I like the whole look of the movie. I like the costuming. I like the set design. I like the way it's shot. Um, I like. The, I really like the opening. I think it opens real strong. Whether or not it carries that on, uh, probably not. But I think, you know, even though he said besides Tom Hardy, but I do think he's a compelling enough villain. Um. I think it's better than Insurrection, hands down. I think it's better than Generations, hands down. Uh, First Context, way better. But I I think it's an entertaining movie. I think it's, if anything, it's nice to look at. (laughs) No, I I just, I think it's decent. I, I, I understand it's weak, and I understand it's got problems. But I think there's enough there to make it easily watchable. I never felt bored watching it. Like I do with Generations or Insurrection. But uh, we want to thank you all for your feedback. Uh, we also want to thank Chris Oliver for the music used in our show. He listened to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarda for the art used on our show. She accepts commissions at fiverwith2rs.com slash eescarda. We also do want to thank, of course, our guest, Casey Gerard. Casey, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at, at thecaser. That's T-H-E underscore K-A-C-E-R. And that's it. I'm not allowed anywhere else online anymore since the incident. <laughs> yes, the various incidents that have taken place. You know, um, all of the incidents covered in the NDAs. And you can find us on Twitter at DEDBpod or at Double Edge Double Bill, all spelled out, is our email. Where you can send that. Follow myself as well. I'm on uh, at Not The Who's Tommy on Twitter, um, where you can find my musings. Uh, and you can also follow my writing. I'm at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. And you can find Adam in the Nexus talking to his dear children who call him Papa. Oh, I've gone and wet myself. (laughs) That's just Adam talking. Um, (laughs) um, And we also encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review the show. So yes, now it is the end of our show, and it is time to do our picking for next week. Uh, For those of you who don't know, at the end of every episode, Adam and I uh, will pick the good and bad features for our upcoming episode. Um, we each have two movies that we, the other doesn't know about beyond our topic, and we both assign the numbers between 1 and 10. Usually we'd each guess the number between 1 and 10 in order to um, get the good and bad feature for the next episode, but when we have a guest like Casey here, he will end up doing that picking of number between 1 and 10, 
And our topic for next week, uh, we decided to do something different because it's kind of a slow January week. And this is a topic we've mulled over doing for a while. Um, as subjective as our usual stuff is, this may be the most subjective subject we've ever done. Uh, the topic is overrated and underrated films. And this is all based on Adam and I's own perceptions. Of In my case, I have the two underrated movies, and Adam has the two overrated movies. Yes, I'm excited for this one. Yeah, it gives Not us more really, of a, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it gives us more of a interesting perspective on each other. Um, but for my two good or underrated films, Casey, number two, one and ten. One and a half. Okay, we haven't done halves before. That's interesting. Um, but that is closest to the number three pick I had, which is um, also going to be the oldest movie we've ever covered on the show by this point. Um, a movie starring Robert Mitchum called Night of the Hunter. Oh my god! Yes. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, I love that movie so much. It's it's a recent discovery for me, and it was interesting. The moment I watched it uh, back when Filmstruck was a thing, I immediately bought the Criterion Edition Blu-ray because I'm like, as you should. This is amazing, and I, I can't wait mm-hmm. to go into that and expose more people to it. Though I do also love um, at number six. It's a lot more of a silly pick, but it's one that I have championed many a time, and would love to talk about further in perhaps a future episode, uh, Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story. I think it's a supremely underrated comedy. One of my favorites. Eh, I love both those picks. I'm a man on that. Mm. Yeah. We're definitely yeah. talking about that so I can fucking school you on this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, please. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but now, Casey, for Adam's two bad picks, number between one and ten. 9.99. Well, at number 10, I have the James Cameron epic Avatar. Oh, boy, I haven't seen that in a while. That'll be interesting. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> I refuse to believe that movie was ever released on DVD. There's no evidence of it. Uh, number two, I have Scarface with Pacino. I think both of those movies are overrated, so good job. Hey, man, that's the whole point, to get you on board. I think at last we understand each other, Frodo Baggins. <laughs> Yes, uh, we, we've all come together in the spirit of the Federation uh, to be united, for sure, on that. Uh, but thank you, Casey, for doing those picks, and we thank all of you for listening. And until next time, beam us up. <laughs> Great sound work. Casey's our sound engineer. <laughs> Excellent. It should be noted I've been wearing Boba Fett socks the whole time. Traitor. Yep. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night.